Welcome to the We Serve podcast of Government Policy, Real Estate, and You. I'm Liz Recchia, Government Affairs Director for the We Serve Association of Realtors, and today we have a special guest interview. Property managers and property owners are under a lot of stress, both financial and emotional. Trying to derive an income while renting property to others has become very complicated under COVID-19, with an increasing number of rules emanating from a number of sources, all designed to protect the tenant's ability to stay in a rental house while deferring the rent. While the rules that allow deferral favor the tenant, they place property owners in a difficult position, particularly if the tenant in question has violated other parts of the rental agreement having nothing to do with non-payment of rent or the tenant ceased paying rent well before COVID-19. Property owners are still liable for particular issues under the Arizona Landlord-Tenant Act, such as property repairs, property taxes, and other items. I was fortunate to have a chance to sit down with Judge Wismer from the Arrowhead Justice Court on August 26th. We discussed what landlords and tenants need to know when seeking adjudication regarding eviction in the era of COVID-19. Well, today our guest is going to be Judge Wismer of the Arrowhead Justice Court. Some of you may remember that the judge visited us in January, and he discussed how the justice courts work and what processes and protocols there are. So if you are unfamiliar with that or you need a refresher, you can go to weservegad.org, click on videos, and you will see Judge Wismer's video. But he's here with us today because, as you know, we've had a lot of confusion about whether or not property owners can evict someone under the current moratorium on evictions because of COVID-19. Some property owners think they can't do any evictions. Others think that they can, but in what circumstances, they don't know. And the problem is people are unclear. So we thought it'd be really great if we had the judge in so he can explain to us from his point of view what it is he's looking for so that he can make a decision. And then you know at least what forms, what contracts, what information you should have prepared if you are in a position where you think you may be evicting someone during current circumstances. So hopefully this will bring clarity to you and you will be able to go forward with your tenants in a in a manner that is best for both you and them. So Judge Wismer, thank you so much for coming today. And why don't you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, Liz, thank you to you and to the We've Served members for the opportunity to be invited to join you today to do this podcast on this very important issue on evictions. But as you asked a little bit about myself, um, I'm not quite a native of Arizona and the West Valley, but I suppose I come close to it. I was born in California, spent three years there, uh, grew up in Glendale down around Apollo High School. Uh, I did spend about a year living overseas as a kid in Indonesia and came back then and my parents relocated to northern Glendale up around Bel Air. I lived there. I uh, attended and graduated high school from Brophy. I attended classes and graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science from both the ASU West and the main campuses. And then while I was in my final year of college, I had an opportunity because of my major to serve a political internship with then Congressman John Kyle. After I graduated from college, I was fortunate in that a member of his staff was retiring. He offered me a position of employment, which I readily accepted. 
and I remained with uh, Senator Kyle through his retirement from the U.S. Senate in 2012. At that time, I chose to run for elected office in my current position as Justice of the Peace for the Arrowhead Justice Precinct. And just as a, a quick, uh, well, just to let the members know, the boundaries of the Arrowhead Justice Precinct, there are uh, 26 justice courts within Maricopa County, each have geographical boundaries that define their jurisdiction. The boundaries for the Arrowhead Justice Precinct that I was elected to represent run north to about Joe Max or the 303, westbound to 115th Avenue, takes in all of Sun City, uh, south as far as about Northern Avenue, and then it zigzags on the east side for around uh, 59th Avenue, 51st Avenue. Those are the geographical boundaries, jurisdictional boundaries of the Arrowhead Justice Precinct that I represent. I was elected through a special election in 2012. I've run a couple of times for re-election, and I've been uh, privileged to have the voters return me to office, and I'm uh, currently serving uh, right now again still as the elected Justice of the Peace. And to wrap up, uh, I currently live in Peoria. I've lived there since early 1992, and that's where my family and I currently live. Great. Well, thanks for coming, and let's start off with our first question. In July, on July 16th, Governor Ducey issued an executive order that extended the tenant eviction moratorium. And since the moratorium went into effect earlier this year, as well as that extension, property owners and property managers, they have been confused as to when and if conviction, or evictions can proceed. So the, there are several questions, and the basic questions are, are evictions delayed? Are all of them delayed? Can a property owner still evict a tenant that violates contract terms, such as the number of occupants or pets or other types of terms that were in their contract? Can they evict if there's non-payment of rent that preceded COVID-19? Can they still go forward with that? So those are some basics. First of all, I think it would be an important important because of what I've seen in the in the court that I represent, and we do handle eviction matters. It's a multifaceted justice court. We handle many issues. Evictions is indeed uh, one of them. There is an important distinction, I guess you would call it, to 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 bring up, and that is when the question is posed: Are evictions delayed? If the definition of eviction is that somebody is removed from the property then indeed there are some qualifying criteria that must be met under the governor's executive order in order for there to be a delay in the service of the writ of restitution. If though the issue of an eviction delay is viewed within the context of can I get a judgment for return of possession and for a certain sum of money, the answer is there are no prohibitions within the governor's executive order that prohibits somebody from coming forward and for seeking a judgment from a justice court for return to possession and for a sum of money for a breach of the uh, rental contract that is the lease agreement. So we'll, we'll start with that. Um, but if we're focusing on, uh, and maybe I should say too quickly, Liz, the way the process works is if a plaintiff, the landlord, is of the opinion there has been a breach of the lease agreement, um, then after perhaps some statutory requirements are met, they can, if they want to go forward, file a complaint within a justice court for um, perhaps a judgment to be entered for a return of possession and for a sum of money. Uh, if the judgment has been entered after a certain per after a certain period of time passes as defined by statute, 
the plaintiff can come back to the court and ask for a writ of restitution to be issued. The writ of restitution would be issued by the court, and it's then handed over to a constable to be able to actually serve that upon somebody. Really, what is important to understand here is there is nothing as far as the governor's executive order is. CARES Act comes into play as far as the judgments are concerned. But there is nothing within the governor's executive order that prohibits anybody from coming to court to get a judgment for return of possession or for that sum of money that they might be seeking that might be, uh, uh, that might be allowable. The governor's executive order does establish qualifying criteria for a possible suspension of the writ of restitution that would officially return possession of the property back to the property owner. In the order, the governor set out COVID-19 criteria under which writs of restitution should be delayed for the residential properties. Can you, can you review some of those criteria and how they enter into your process of, as a judge in current eviction cases? Certainly. The executive order that we're talking about is known as Executive Order 2020-49, which I actually have right here and that I am looking at. It has certain eligibility criteria that must be met for a possible suspension in the execution of the writ of restitution. As of August 21st, some of the other criteria that used to apply prior to that date, uh, some of the other criteria no longer come into play. The criteria as of August uh, 21st uh, simply revolves around whether the defendant can make a credible claim that they have suffered a substantial loss of income for a COVID-related issue that includes anything from a job loss to a furlough to a reduction in compensation. That's where the criteria begins. The executive order then goes through some other steps that the uh, defendant must take in order to provide written notification to the landlord that they indeed have a qualifying criteria. It does require that they actually ask for a payment plan in writing for, from their landlord. It also now requires that they can demonstrate to their landlord and eventually to the court as well if it gets to that point, but they can also demonstrate that they have made an application for financial assistance, rental assistance to be, to be specific, from a city, state, county, or nonprofit program. So to really encapsulate this as of August 21st, if somebody gets a judgment for return of possession, the writ of restitution is sought by the plaintiff. That writ of restitution is handed over to the constable. The constable will come out to the property planning on serving it. The defendant who may still be in possession of the property if they haven't actually left the property, they can at that point in time have a conversation with the constable about their issue. They'll say whatever they want to say to the constable. If the constable is of the opinion that they have a qualifying criteria, but they haven't yet provided notice to the landlord, I can tell you uh, that the constables have pretty much adopted a best practice in which they will give the person about a five-day window of opportunity to comply with the governor's um, uh, criteria, and that is to give notice to the landlord, as I just mentioned on this issue of financial hardship. They would then come back and revisit the property. If the person hasn't provided the, the documentation within that window, it'll be up to the constable to decide what they want to do. They could actually serve the writ of restitution, uh, or perhaps uh, uh, they don't. The point I'm making is that once the constable goes out to serve, if the constable is of the opinion there is qualifying criteria, this executive order gives the constables the sole authority to decide, no, I'm putting a halt on service of the writ. Once that action is taken by the constable, 
the period the the case is going to enter a period of stasis nothing is going to happen unless pursuant to the governor's executive order the plaintiff that is the landlord were to come back to court and were to file something known as a motion to compel execution of the writ if they do file that motion with the court they are required to actually serve it upon the opposing party that is the defendant and pursuant to a best practice policy the court will set it for a hearing uh, within five days within five business days uh, we do a lot of our work right now telephonically. This, I would want the parties to actually appear in court so documentation can be exchanged and each side can be able is able to see what the other side has brought to the table, so to speak. Um, so it would be set for a hearing, and then the arguments would be made as to whether the uh, motion to compel status or execution of the writ should be granted or not. Just so you know, the burden of proof is upon the defendant to substantiate that the suspension should remain in place, and that burden of proof is known as proving their case by what's called a preponderance of the evidence. It's a slight tipping the scale in favor of the defendant. I would probably be remiss in... It, there are some, there's something important I want to address as far as the qualifying criteria is concerned, though. Again, as of August 21, they've got to substantiate that there indeed is a financial hardship, and I went through those criteria, such as job loss, loss of compensation, furlough, and so forth, and there's some other steps they need to take. I want to make it clear, though, that the governor's order, uh, executive order, how do I put this, isn't all-encompassing, and by that I mean simply this. If judgment was entered for an issue other than non-payment of rent, that is for something called material and reparable breach of the lease agreement. That is non-compliance with the lease agreement that might include issues such as too many occupants or pets when you're not supposed to have them or too many pets. That is not a covered issue under the governor's executive order. So the plaintiff would probably make the argument, listen, the judgment was entered. It had nothing to do with non-payment of rent and the governor's executive order doesn't indeed give list of qualifying criteria for something like material and irreparable breach. It's something the court's going to have to take in consideration because, into consideration because it's not covered under the executive order. What else is not covered under the executive order is judgment for a uh, material health and safety violation of the lease agreement. What else is not covered by the executive order is what's called material and irreparable breach of the lease agreement. That is, the issue cannot be repaired. It's oftentimes a violation of the crime-free addendum, but even if the contract doesn't have a crime-free addendum, the statutes define what constitutes a material and irreparable breach of the lease agreement. Most oftentimes it includes a criminal act, such as illegal discharge of a weapon, prostitution, criminal street gang activity, threatening and intimidating, assault, disorderly conduct. The point I'm making is it's going to be left to the constable when he or she goes to serve to determine if based upon what the defendant says to him or her they've complied with the documentation requirements of the executive order but their case that is the basis for the eviction action and the reason why the judgment was entered actually qualifies or does not for a stay in the writ and again if the constable decides to stay issuance of the writ it'll be up to the plaintiff if they want to instead of just leaving it in stasis to file with the Justice Court a motion to compel execution, and then some of what, really a lot of what I just mentioned, is what's going to come into the uh, judge's decision-making process as to whether you grant the motion and order the writ to be served, which if you do, it'll be served no more than five days going forward, 
or if you decide no, the criteria have been met to leave the suspension in place, then you take that action as well. Lastly, and I know I'm getting long-winded here, but one other argument that can be made pursuant to the government governor's order is that it is in the interest of justice to actually order that the writ of restitution be executed or be served. It's a very nebulous kind of all-encompassing criteria. Both parties will have an opportunity, since they're in court, they'll have an opportunity to make their arguments on the interest of justice uh, case and take it from there. Okay, so um, there is a way for a property owner who thinks that they they should question what the constable does, but they have to wait that five days before they actually file for that compelling motion, motion to, to compel. compel. Yeah, I would I would say that depends on what what action the constable is taking. Again, what I have heard is because I'm not a constable, but I do work with them. It was my understanding that the constables at least in Maricopa County, I don't know if Arizona, we're going to uh, adopt a best practice. And that is they go out to serve the writ. The defendant says, no, I think I've got a qualifying criteria for suspension of it under the governor's executive order. Constable has a conversation. If the constable would think, you know, this might indeed meet this, meet the requirements of the executive order, then would probably ask, have you provide written notice of your financial hardship as is required? Have you requested a payment plan? Have you provided your landlord with evidence that you've made a request for financial rental assistance? If the defendant were to say, no, I didn't do that. I didn't know I had to or whatnot. It's my understanding many constables, and it'll be left to their discretion, might say to them, fine, we will give you no more than five days in which to do that, and then we're going to come back and knock on your door again and have the conversation with you to see if you followed through. If you don't follow through, it's still going to be left to the constable to decide what he or she wants to do. But that's where the possibility of five days comes into play. If the constable as of today were to go to serve and were to then advise the landlord and the defendant, I think there's qualifying criteria, or even if they don't offer an explanation, it's just, I'm not serving the writ. No, there is no requirement that the plaintiff wait five days before they come back to court and file a motion to compel. They can file the motion to compel right away. Okay, great. And then one of the other issues that our property managers and property owners don't know what they can do, it sort of kept them in limbo, is if they were already in the process of having a tenant who was not paying their rent, they were going to be evicted based on that basis, but COVID came in instead. What does that property owner or property manager need to know about whether they can or can't go forward with the eviction based on the fact of this person hadn't paid rent for a while before COVID. How, I don't know how a judge looks at that criteria. I would say probably what factors in more on that issue is whether they can actually go forward and file a complaint for non-payment of rent and that breach of the lease agreement and ask for a judgment for return of possession and for back rent and so forth is probably more impacted by what's known as the CARES Act, the Federal CARES Act, than it is with the executive order. Because again, with the executive order, Anybody, this has no application to somebody filing a complaint with the Justice Court, having the case go to an initial appearance or a trial if necessary, and for a judge entering a judgment for return of possession and for, again, a certain sum of money. There is nothing in the executive order that prohibits that. The executive order actually has no impact 
on that part of the process. It is on the back end as far as service of the writ of restitution is concerned. The other, I'd say, fly in the ointment is concerned as far as actually pursuing a judgment, again, goes back to this issue of the CARES Act. By my recollection, and this was at the federal level, it was it was passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. I believe the CARES Act, and then C-A-R-E-S, the CARES Act went into effect, by my recollection, on March 27th of this year, and it expired on July 24, if I remember correctly. But what it said is that if your covered dwelling is covered by the CARES Act, and in, in, there's a number of criteria, but to a great extent it focused on whether the mortgage was actually insured by a federal entity, namely Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. That's part of what defined a covered dwelling. But if the property was indeed recognized as a covered dwelling and was covered by the CARES Act, then there was a moratorium on actually bringing forth an eviction complaint and a judgment being entered until the CARES Act expired again by my recollection on the 24th of July. In addition, the CARES Act uh, included a 30-day notice to uh, terminate the lease agreement for non-payment of rent. And the CARES Act focuses exclusively on the issue of non-payment of rent. CARES Act is not implicated for an issue of too many occupants, for too many dogs, noise complaints, material, and irreparable breach. CARES Act focuses exclusively on the issue of non-payment of rent. But again, it carried a 30-day notice, which is actually contrary to Arizona law. Arizona Residential Landlord and Tenant Act, if you're going to evict somebody, you're going to actually file a complaint for, um, uh, for a breach of the lease agreement due to non-payment of rent. Under Arizona law, you're required to give them a five-day notice, an opportunity to cure it, and if they do, the, key, the, the case is not going to go forward to a lawsuit. Well, the federal law came in and said, nope, for the issue of non-payment of rent during the validity period of the CARES Act, a 30-day notice is going to indeed be required. That's really what is going to be more implicated right now on the issue of non-payment of rent. If you go back to a, a any time between now, back to June, back to March, whatever the case might be, back to February, back to January, can somebody indeed file a complaint for non-payment? They sure can. But what a judge is going to be looking at is whether or not the... Um, whether or not the property was covered by the CARES Act, and indeed, again, as I keep saying, it was actually implicated. If it was, the judge going to be, is going to be looking to see whether you provided a 30-day notice, as is required. Um, and interestingly, the CARES Act didn't allow for that 30-day notice to be served upon the defendant during the validity period of the CARES Act. You couldn't actually serve the 30-day notice on the defendant until the CARES Act expired, which brings us... I think it was to the 24th of August was the soonest a CARES Act property could actually even go forward to a filing with a justice court. Wow. That's, a, that, that's part of the confusion is people keeping all the different pieces in line. So thank you because that is much more clear now what you should be looking at to do different actions. And if you want to talk, Liz, a little bit more about the CARES Act specifically, there are some additional requirements pursuant to some administrative orders that we're required to be looking for and some required steps that are, are outlined for a plaintiff to take that they've got to comply with if they're going to go forward with a matter, with a case involving uh, a CARES Act covered property. I, I fear what I'm doing here is is being quite verbose on something that perhaps could be encapsulated and it really would come down to this, I guess I would say. 
if the property is not covered by the CARES Act, it's not implicated, um, then there's no prohibition whatsoever on filing a complaint for it. If the CARES Act is implicated, you could still file it. There's just some additional requirements you need to comply with. You've got to give a 30-day notice. You've got to actually file with the court and serve upon the defendant an attestation that would indicate if the CARES Act is indeed implicated. If the CARES Act is, in, is indeed implicated, you can't be charging, nor can the court award you late fees for the period in question, which again, I believe is from March 27 through July 24. So what we'd be looking at, if a case came into my court today, maybe this is the best way to illustrate it, if you'll allow me. If the case came in today, and the attestation that is required by the administrative order states, yes, this property was covered by the CARES Act. Okay, I'm going to be looking to see whether or not you actually have filed with the court and served the attestation that says it was covered by the CARES Act. If you've served it and you filed it with the court, good, we move on to the next issue. Did you provide a 30-day notice? If you did, we move on to the next issue. Then we move into whether there's been a breach of the lease agreement, and if there is a basis to enter judgment for return of possession and for a sum of money, just know that you're not going to be get, you're not going to be awarded late fees by the court because during the period that the CARES Act was in effect, late fees could not be awarded. They couldn't be charged. They couldn't be awarded. Okay, great. In order for the property owner and the tenant to maintain their rights, they each have to follow process. Can you review the forms that each party needs to submit in order to follow the process efficiently and correctly? And what are some of the common mistakes you see from tenants and some for property owners? Well, as far as the mistakes, this is, is, is an opportune time to address this because I've been seeing a rather abundance of them in court. And I'll tell you what some of them are what we're doing address it and um, where it goes from there. As far as the forms are concerned, and by the way, whether it be the forms that I'm about to mention or it be any background information that I've discussed, whether it be the plaintiff's attestation, whether it be the defendant's notice to the landlord, all of these forms are available on the Maricopa County Justice Court website, and the website address for that is justicecourts.maricopa.gov. There is a tab called Case Types. You can pull down the tab uh, or, the, or the, uh, the menu listing, if you will, choose evictions. It will take you to a dedicated evictions page where many of these forms have links that you can actually get, whether you're a plaintiff or, a, you're, or you are a defendant. Also, when you land on the main webpage for the Maricopa County Justice Court website, there is, I think we'll call it a salmon-colored big, big page that talks about COVID-19 and some special conditions, requirements, whatever you want to call them for COVID-19. You click on that link. Um, it will talk about court policies and procedures. But again, there is a subsection on evictions where many of these forms, these notices, these attestations, links to sample ones that are commonly accepted are already there. But to get to your question, if somebody is going to file a lawsuit, that is a case for uh, return of possession and for a sum of money, it'll start with the plaintiff filing a complaint with the Arrowhead Justice Court. Uh, it does need to be served upon the defendant. The defendant can file an answer if the defendant wants to do so. Whether they file an answer or not, the case is going to be considered or set for what's called an initial appearance, an initial hearing. Uh, in the Arrowhead Justice Court, that's going to occur on a Tuesday or Thursday morning. 
if when the parties appear, I find that there is a basis to set the court for trial, not just legal arguments, but there are some factual disputes. It could be set for trial the same day. It could be set for trial a couple of days later. Under existing statutes, the trial would have to be set in justice court no later than three business days going forward. An administrative order from uh, the Arizona Supreme Court that is in effect right now waives those statutory times, waives other rule time under the rules of procedure for eviction actions. So if the court calendar would not allow for the trial to occur within the three-day period of, of time, the court doesn't need to look for a stipulation by the parties to go beyond it. The court now has the authority as long as that executive or that administrative order is in effect. And I do seem to recall it re runs through December 31st. The court can indeed go past those statutory timelines. But as far as forms are concerned, it, it, it's really that basic if you're going to file a lawsuit for return of possession and for, again, a sum of money, unpaid rent or uh, things of that nature. As far as the common pitfalls, I will tell you what I am seeing so far. Uh, this is going to apply almost always to self-represented plaintiffs. There's not so much on the defense on the defendant's end because it's a choice for them to decide whether they are going to file an answer with the court or not and serve it upon the plaintiff. There's not much that I'm seeing there. What I'm seeing in the what I'm seeing in the shortcomings are from the plaintiff's standpoint. That is the person filing the lawsuit, and it would be this. Um, on the Maricopa County Justice Court website, uh, there are uh, summons. The summons gives a date and time, that is, gives notice to the defendant when they're to appear. The summons has to be served upon the defendant. The complaint needs to be served upon the defendant. The attestation needs to be served onto the defendant as to whether the property is or isn't covered by the CARES Act. There's a document called the Residential Eviction Information Sheet that needs to be served upon the defendant. In cases of an allegation of non-payment of rent, up to a six-month ledger needs to be served upon the defendant. In addition, the pertinent section of the lease agreement, whether we're dealing with non-payment of rent or not, or it could be the too many occupants, too many pets, or whatever. A pertinent section of the lease agreement needs to be served upon the defendant. I will tell you at times plaintiffs have simply decided, I'm not going to try and extract from the lease agreement what I think is pertinent. The judge may have a different opinion, so I'm serving the entire lease agreement upon the defendant, and they can do that as well. But we move back to that summons. On the Justice Court website, a plaintiff can actually uh, choose some drop-down menus to actually have a proposed summons prepared up that they will present to the court. Once they present it to the court, the clerk will pen in the date and time that both parties are to actually come back. And it's that notice that is served upon the defendant that tells them where they're to appear and when they're supposed to appear. What I'm seeing so far is a fair number of instances in which self-represented plaintiffs are using that tool on the Justice Court website but they are not using the option to actually pre-populate the summons with the court's name, address, and phone number. And under the rules of procedure for eviction action, that information is required to be there. Whether it's going to be telephonic appearance or not, the information is required. Uh, as far as Arrowhead is concerned, if that is presented to us and it doesn't identify for the defendant where they need to be, we're going to reject it. And we're going to tell the plaintiff, go back, Make sure that you use the drop-down menu, populate it with Arrowhead Justice Court, the address on Tierra Buena, the 372-2000 number, resubmit it. The clerk will check it. If it's good, passes muster. We'll pen in the date and time for the appearance, hand it back to you, and now it's up to you to serve. What else have we seen that are some shortcomings uh, from self-represented plaintiffs? 
they're not providing me with evidence that is their certificate of service. So when I go to the initial appearance, if you will, I'm looking to see if the defendant is not appearing, I'm looking to see if proper notice was given. And does your certificate of service indicate that you did serve them with the summons? Well, I can't make that conclusion if I don't have a copy of the certificate of service. That needs to be filed with the court ahead of time. It should be filed by the process server, but since you hired the process server, you figuratively, you're going to want to follow up with them and make sure that that certificate of service is indeed filed with the court. You're also going to want to make sure that it fully documents what was served upon them. Uh, I have also found that uh, another shortcoming, if you will, a deficiency, if you want to call it, is that even if we get past some of that, the precursor to the lawsuit is that in the case of a non-payment of rent, uh, either be at the 30-day notice if it is covered by the CARES Act and you're asking for rent within the validity period of when the CARES Act was in effect, or non-payment of rent, not CARES Act, you still have to, in that case, serve the five-day notice that I talked about earlier. It's the precursor to the lawsuit. You don't actually serve the five-day notice. Your case isn't going forward. And so I'm looking for that as well. And I'm finding that either the five-day notice is not given to the court ahead of time, or if it is, there's no indication as to how the five-day notice was actually served. And the notice requirements for that five-day notice under the Residential Landlord and Tenant Act recognize two methods that you can properly serve that notice of non-payment of rent, the five-day cure, if you will. And that is either you can hand deliver it, uh, or B, you can serve it by certified mail. If you're going to serve it by certified mail, that's fine, but you need to give the court some tracking information to be able to actually verify that it was actually put into the mail system. Even if the defendant doesn't receive that notice under statutes, it's still recognized as proper service of the notice. And again, that's the precursor to the lawsuit. What I'm trying to illustrate, Liz, is that if I don't get the attestation, I just don't get it at all. Do I have time on the bench right now to be able to say, all right, listen, we're going to take a pause, go ahead and fax it on and fax it over and we'll continue? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. And if the eviction filings pick up, I don't know if, well, I don't know that I will have time to. And so then what am I going to do? If you haven't complied with the requirements of filing with the court and serving the attestation. I don't have the certificate of service. The defendant hasn't appeared, so I really don't know if they were given proper notice of when to appear. The case is going to be dismissed. It'll be dismissed without prejudice, which means it can be refiled, but at least if there's salve on the wound, I guess, it would be, now you know what you did wrong, in my opinion, the first time, and hopefully you'll make sure it's corrected the second time. Either you're going to have taken notes and you're still going to represent yourself the second go around, fine. Or you may decide, and it'll be your call, obviously, that maybe there's a reason to hire a professional in this regard, somebody that is well-versed in eviction law, and that might speak to hiring an eviction attorney to represent you. And then, if that is the case, these kind of issues usually do not come up. Okay, and we're going to have the links to the website that Judge Wismer mentioned. We're going to have those links in the podcast show notes. So you don't have to, to worry about forgetting that if you're in the car driving around. Just go to the show notes when you get a chance, and you'll link right into that website. Before we go on to the last question, is there anything in particular you want to make sure we cover that we haven't covered already? My recommendation, I would say, is that for somebody who is doing this the first time or they're not quite familiar with all of these requirements, and listen, I don't deny everything I've gone over. I'm able to rattle it off because I deal with it. 
trying to actually paint a picture for everybody to understand. I first do this, then I do this, then I do this. It's not always so easy when there are so many moving parts to different to this type of case because it could be pursued for this reason or for this reason. If it's for this reason, then this document may be required or maybe this one will be required. The point I'm making is I think the Maricopa County Justice Court website for somebody that is not familiar with the process or maybe some of the changes because of the governor's executive order, because of the CARES Act, for example, and however they might come into play, the Maricopa County Justice Court website is a great starting point. It will, as I said, have a lot of the forms that will walk you through the process. You would be well served, anybody who is a plaintiff would be well served even after they've done that. Uh, they'd be well served to pick up the phone, make sure, first of all, they're filing the case in the correct justice court. Okay, I don't have jurisdiction because of where my boundaries are, Sun City, Central Peoria, and some parts of North Glendale. Somebody that's over in Scottsdale can file into my court. I don't have jurisdiction over it, and we're going to reject it. Um, but the point I'm making is I think they would still be well served even having visited the website, having listened to the podcast. I think they'd still be well served if they're going to move forward after they have visited the website, become familiar with the forms and the steps that are described there, to pick up the phone, if it's for the Arrowhead Justice Court, fair enough, or for another justice court, do that, and tell the person that answers the phone, you've got some questions concerning eviction matters, and they're procedural. You'd like to know what do you do here, what do you do here, what do you do there? The clerks will never give legal advice. They'll never strategize. But there's also no harm in telling them you begin the process by filing a complaint. You also begin the process by asking for us to issue a summons. You can get a sample summons off of the website. Make sure it's got the Arrowhead Justice Court name, address, and phone number. You then present it to the court. Here's how you can get it to us if we're not having anybody come into the building. Here's the email address. Here's how you can get it to us. Um, and then this is what we will do, and then this is what you got to do. And after you've done that, that's what you need. This is what you need to file with the court. And then after you've done that, now we will be setting it for a hearing and be looking for this in the mail. The point is, the clerks can walk individuals through this process as well. But I really encourage folks to go to that website. I've said it several times, and or to talk to the clerks because. I can really sense the frustration and I can understand it when I have somebody on the telephone because we're doing telephonic appearance and I'm going through scrutinizing the file and I'm asking again, as I've said several times, um, we've got a problem with the summons. Maybe we missed rejecting it, um, but you're the one that printed it. You're the one presented to us. Yes, we should have caught it, but we didn't. But now it's in front of me. The rules require that this information be on there. It's not. Am I going to look past that issue? No, I won't. Uh, we're looking to see, do I have that certificate of service? I don't have the certificate. We've got a problem. Do I have an attestation? Was it indeed served upon the defendant? Well, I filed one with the court. I know, but it's required that you serve it. Did you serve it? I see the certificate of service, but it doesn't tell me the attestation was indeed served. Did you do that? Well, I didn't know that. This is kind of a laundry list or a checklist that you go down through. And as these deficiencies are noted, it might be, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. Okay, I've basically told you what you need to do to correct it. And um, the case, again, is going to be dismissed. Now it's up to you to take care of those issues. Bring it back to me as a new filing. Maybe then we'll be able to get beyond some of these issues and get to the actual merits of whether your case actually warrants what you're requesting, which is entry of judgment for return of possession and maybe non-payment.
All right, one last question before we leave. And we've talked about the practical, the checklist, the process. But for both plaintiffs and for defendants, this can be kind of an emotional time, particularly if you're doing it over electronic means and not just in, in front of you as a judge. Do you have any last words of advice for people who are going to enter the court? Because they're going to be a little nervous and a little concerned. A couple of things that come to mind off of the cuff, Liz. Uh, first of all, it seems to be that one of the intrinsic advantages, it's unfortunate what required us to go to telephonic appearance was the development of COVID-19 and the impact it's had on so many people. However, if you're looking for a silver lining, okay, and I think it's good too, to see if you can find one, apparently the intrinsic value in telephonic appearance is that I think most any justice court judge would agree over the past number of months we've seen an increase even though the filings have gone down significantly the rate of appearance especially by the defendants has gone up significantly it means judgments are not being entered by default with non-appearance of the defendant nearly as often as they had been before but we've got a lot of plaintiffs and a lot of defendants that are actually making their appearance telephonically, and that's good news because that way, as the judge, you get to hear from both both parties. You make your decision. If you don't rule in, well, you're going to rule in favor of one party. The other party can appeal your decision. Um, uh, when it goes to a default, they've got to file a motion to vacate. It gets a little more complicated, but you can hear both parties. You can explain why you're doing what you're doing. And if it turns out, for example, you rule in favor of the plaintiff, you have an opportunity now to explain to the defendant because they've appeared. Here's when the writ of restitution, whether it's again non-payment or, or material and irreparable breach or whatnot, here's when the writ of restitution could issue. Here are some things you might want to do in the interim period of time if you want to stay there. Go back and talk to the plaintiff, see if they'll work with you. If they will work with you to accept a sum of money to reinstate your residency, that is reinstate the lease agreement uh, not just satisfy the judgment that's good if that works then maybe the judgment will go be will go away they'll file a motion to vacate it and the case will go away if that doesn't work you can explain to the defendant as well here's when the writ of restitution as I said could issue if if it looks like you're gonna have to move but you need some more time go back and talk to the plaintiff to see if they'll work with you just because they can come back by this time is defined in statute to seek the writ doesn't mean they have to if they want to work with you to give you an extra couple of days a week two weeks or whatever that time period is there's another good reason to talk to them you can explain to them as well how the governor's executive order based upon what they want to tell you might have some uh, application to their scenario their situation you could tell them where they can find the notices you can tell the plaintiff then what might happen if the constable uh, insists on not serving the red the point I'm trying to illustrate is there's a good opportunity to actually dialogue with everybody and even if you don't rule in their favor explain to them these are options you may have either options by statute by the administrative order by the executive order or just some practical experience we as judges have from serving on the bench so there's a good opportunity to do it as well i will tell you what i do oftentimes find with defendants it's good they're appearing Un unfortunately for them a lot of times their argument has been um when they're appearing that first time to see whether uh, they're making their first appearance they'll make the argument Judge, I've got a COVID-19 issue. I was quarantined or I've got a financial hardship and therefore I don't think it should go forward. Now we get the dubious pleasure, and I don't really mean pleasure, of explaining to them, sir, ma'am, 
Financial hardship is not a legal defense to the non-payment of rent. I think you're misinterpreting the governor's executive order. The executive order issues concerning COVID-19 impact whether the writ can be served or it will be stayed. It's not going to impact whether the judgment can be entered for a sum of money in return of possession. So it's, a, I guess, a misconception that seems to circulate around out there that the governor's executive order put the kibosh, so to speak, on evictions. No, it didn't. It had no impact on the eviction judgments, only on the writs. But at least there's an opportunity to explain that to the defendants as well. Any words of wisdom or advice for plaintiffs or defendants who are appearing? I know you mentioned that, yes, folks might be nervous. You've got a man or a woman on the on an elevated platform called a bench if they're even appearing in person. They're wearing black. But regardless, my goodness, I'm appearing in court. I'm the plaintiff. I've never done this before. Have I filed everything correctly? I'm the defendant. I'm appearing in front of a judge. I, geez, I thought that was only for criminal charges or whatever the case might be. I don't speak for my colleagues, but from what I can tell with most any judge, they're willing to hear everybody. They certainly should be willing to hear what folks have to say. Um, Folks may be nervous about the fact that, geez, I want to know if I can get my property back. The defendant wants to know, am I going to have to leave? And if I've got to leave, I've heard through the rumor mill that I've only got five days to find another place to live. My goodness. Plus, I've got that eviction judgment, which is a ding on my credit report and could serve as an impediment me to find another place to live. All of these factors, I understand where the nervousness comes in from, comes from. But and I'm not saying they shouldn't be nervous, but there's really no reason. It's just a person on the other end of the phone who happens to have the authority to make a final decision. That's true. You'll be heard. It just so happens because of the increased rate of appearance and the telephonic appearances that these cases are not handled in such summary fashion. But that's not a bad thing. If it takes longer to hear what somebody wants to say to be able to digest where the case is going and then to offer explanations for what you're doing, that's actually a positive. They may not want to hear it. I get it. But it, it, it's, it's a positive. Plus, if they made their appearance and they don't agree with you, they can appeal your decision to superior court. So that opportunity is preserved as well. So I understand the nervousness. But again, it's uh, just state your case and listen to what the judge has to say. You have some questions. Um, even if the calendar is very, is, is very um, congested, I would think any judge, certainly I, would be willing to take a few minutes to answer those questions so folks are fully informed about what happened, what their options are, and then they make some decisions going forward as to what they're going to do. Thank you. And that's one of the things that we appreciate is your willingness to make sure that you educate not just us on podcasts or visits, but some of our property managers have have told me that they've appeared in your court. And one of the things they really appreciate was the way you educate everyone who's in court and let them know what they can do and what they are, what what the ramifications of what their decisions may be, whatever their choices are, just so they know are very clear on what the process is. So we really appreciate that. Thank you very much. I appreciate everybody spending time to listen to the podcast. Um, Thank you again for the invitation. It's been a pleasure to be here. I've enjoyed talking to you and the We Serve members about about this important issue. And uh, again, thank you. Great. Thank you for being with us. Before we could post this podcast, the new CDC rules concerning rental evictions came down. Judge Wismer was kind enough to send us his updated statements regarding the impact of the CDC rules on the adjudication process. Here are Judge Wismer's comments. 
On September 4, 2020, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention published in the Federal Register an order that imposes a moratorium on evictions. It is effective immediately and remains valid unless withdrawn, modified, or superseded by federal law through December 31st of this year. It prohibits landlords or owners of properties from filing lawsuits for which a cause of action is non-payment of rent to obtain money judgments and return of possession of the property in which a tenant is residing. The order is not implicated otherwise. In addition, in instances when judgments involving non-payment of rent have already been entered, it could impact service of the writ of restitution. Two final thoughts. One, the order identifies significant criminal penalties, including possible incarceration, to which landlords could be subjected should they be found in violation of it. And two, it neither absolves tenants of their obligations to make periodic rental payments nor, unlike the CARES Act, vitiate, even for a limited period of time, the terms of lease agreements pertaining to the imposition of late charges. In order to invoke the protections, tenants have an obligation to provide to their landlords a completed declaration, the required language of which is included in the order, attesting under penalty of perjury that certain eligibility criteria apply. Both plaintiffs and defendants, by that I mean tenants, would be well advised to seek the advice of legal counsel with experience in eviction matters for assistance in navigating these currently turbulent waters. I want to thank Judge Wismer for his additional statements, which should help clarify what you need to do in order to go forward. It's clear that under current circumstances, the rules keep changing. So as you make your way, make sure you are consulting with your own attorney or expert of your choice. Someone who can stay on top of the various rule changes from the federal government, state government, and local government, whether through legislation or rulemaking. Whether you are a landlord or tenant, being able to navigate the process is the key to preserving your property rights. I'm Liz Recchia. Thanks for joining me today. Remember to check the show notes of this podcast to access the website links Judge Wismer mentioned. We serve GAD, advocating for private property rights, the right to private contract, and your business. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.